three wise men would have been women. What would have happened if it had been three wise women instead of three wise men? Well, there would have been asking, for, uh, you would have asked for directions, they would have arrived on time, they would have helped deliver the baby, they would have cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought practical gifts. But that's not reality, so anyways. If you were blessed to actually have completed doing your lesson for today, then you were reminded of so many countless minute details about the birth of Christ. Every detail was foretold by the prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before they happened. We know from the first book of the Bible that a descendant from Abraham would be the one who would make possible all the families of the earth being blessed. Matthew begins his gospel account Proving Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. More specifically, the Messiah had to be from the tribe of Judah, according to Genesis 49. And again, Matthew proves that in his first chapter, along with Hebrews and Revelation. According to 2 Samuel 7, the Messiah also had to be a descendant of King David. And again, clearly, this is presented in Matthew 1. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 9 that the Messiah must have a legal right to David's throne, and John chapter 1 and 12 show Jesus fulfilled this as well. Probably one of the most familiar aspects of the Messiah is that he was to be born of a virgin, <clears throat> as told by the prophet Isaiah. And of course, Luke chapter 1, you saw in your study, affirms that indeed it was a young teenage girl who was told that she would give birth to Jesus even though she had never been with a man. The prophet Micah made it clear the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, and God orchestrated all of time and history and political powers and intrigue and to bring about this very specific detail. After decades of wars and violence, God raised up Caesar Augustus, who brought political change, who brought stability <clears throat> in a time in history, so he prepared the way for the fullness of time. So the perfect time was for the Messiah to be born, and it was under Augustus who required a census to be taken, which not only was to get a record of how many people were alive, but it was also to tax everyone. But all of this was God at work through a pagan political leader who had no idea he was being used by God to fulfill scripture that he would be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah had to be fully God in John 1, as well as countless other passages make, sure, make that clear that Jesus was fully God. So when you think about the condescension and humility of God Almighty, <clears throat> that he would submit himself to the weakness of a human baby being born in human flesh. I mean, you look at a baby, if you've had a baby, they can't do anything. You know, they're completely helpless. The God of the universe to put himself in that humble condition, it's, it's amazing. His arrival in this very sin-sick world was not a palace, but he was placed in a feeding trough for animals. And the first to worship him were not the religious leaders or the powers of princes and kings, but lowly shepherds. Shepherds were really looked down upon by others. Uh, they kept the sheep, and they were not even allowed to give a, be a witness in a court of law. But here God shows these humble men to witness angelic hosts lighting up the sky, announcing the birth of the Messiah as they rushed to the village and found the baby and told everyone about what they had seen.
Of course, we see that the wise men then came from far away. They had followed a star that God had put in the sky for them and that led them to the baby. <clears throat> Again, scriptures fulfilled in Micah that Jesus, uh, the Messiah would be born in, in Bethlehem. But what's so stunning is that as the religious leaders were called in by Herod as to where does it say the Messiah would be born, when they knew immediately, well, it says in Mike, Micah it would be Bethlehem. They couldn't even walk two miles to go check it out. You know, it's just like, that's the facts, and they were on their way. Nobody even checked it out. You saw that by the time these wise men actually did arrive, Jesus was no longer in a stable, but he was in a house. So they were temporarily living in Bethlehem. Which I thought about that, too. Think of all the neighbors and friends she met and what would be their future, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there was uh, more scripture to be fulfilled uh, regarding the birth of Jesus. The earthly father Joseph was warned by God to leave in the cover of night for Egypt in order to protect this child's life. Because the ego mad madman Herod could not endure the thought that some other man could possibly be the Jewish kings because he had claimed himself to be such even though he wasn't Jewish. So while Jesus and parents were in flight to Egypt, Herod ordered the slaughter of every male baby boy approximately two and under in Bethlehem and all the surrounding area. Think about that. And the gifts that these, that's <clears throat> what was fulfilled then is of course the scripture of Jeremiah, we, Rachel weeping for her children and couldn't be comforted. The gifts the wise men brought were fit for a king and I thought and I listened to somebody else who agreed with what I thought, so I was impressed that, <laughs> that these gifts were likely God's provision for them on the trip to Egypt, living in Egypt, which there was a big community of Jewish people in Egypt at that time. God had paved all those details and made the way all the way along. So they came back from Egypt, and again, this is to fulfill Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I call my son. So when God gave the all clear, Joseph and family headed back to Israel and settled in Galilee. That is one long trek. I mean, way south in Egypt, way north to Galilee. But every tiny detail about the Messiah's birth had come to pass because God orchestrated every detail. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had looked to the prophets, uh, having hope in the coming Messiah, and he came, and yet, as John says, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. No matter where we have studied in the scriptures, ladies, we always see the amazing demonstration of the sovereign power of God at work in the universe, orchestrating all kinds of things for his purpose and his plans, whether it was Esther, whether what we saw when we studied for Samuel. If you've come to know this God through his son Jesus, then you can rest in the truth that he is doing the same in the life of each of his beloved children. He is orchestrating the smallest detail of his children's lives because he has a perfect plan. He who began this work will complete it. Not only that, we can be assured that this same all-powerful God is at work today in our world, in the political chaos and powers that are in our world, bringing together every detail that is necessary for preparation for his return. 
Even though it would appear that everything is out of control in our world, the reality is that God is using every circumstance and all the governments and all the turmoil to put into place everything that has to happen to pave the way for his second coming, just like he did for his first coming. This is why we can have peace on, at Christmas, despite a world full of terror. So I wonder if there's something that you are hoping to get for Christmas. Have you dropped any hints to anybody that you know? Well, the longer you live, I think the more you realize the gifts are nice, but they don't really offer any long-term satisfaction. I bet most of us can't remember what we got last Christmas, unless it was very special. Christmas, though, is not about snow or having a white Christmas. It's not about trees, lovely as they are, and decorations or particular foods or traditions. The reality is it is about Jesus, who was born to die. God is holy, and his holiness condemns every person because all of us are born in sin, separated from holy God. Jesus was born to die because God is just and must punish sin. We read, the soul that sins, it shall die. It is because of the love of God for sinners that Jesus had to be born so he could grow up to die. God is so patient and long-suffering as he waits for sinners to repent. Jesus had to be born so he could die as the perfect sacrifice for sinners and make atonement for our sins. That is the greatest gift anyone could ever receive, forgiveness of sins for all eternity. Well, for the remainder of our time, I'd like us to think about the reaction of this young teenage girl when the angel Gabriel told her she would conceive a son when the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. The praise of Mary that's recorded in Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 56, is where we're going to look. It is so sad and ironic that her song of praise to the Lord has been so twisted by so many that she has become the one to be adored and worshipped. Mm. However, all her praise was directed to God for what he had done in her life, and she shows us what worship looks like so that we can do the same. Mary had to have been stunned, obviously, by the news that she would conceive and have a son without having been with a man. She was told his name would be Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the King of Israel. I remember an old book I had from a long time ago called Her Name is Woman, and it's about various women in the Bible. So I looked up what the author said about Mary, and she reminds me of the, the response initially of Mary was, Behold, when she was told, you're going to have a baby. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. That is the attitude of submission he wants from each of us, the same attitude. Mary, the most privileged among women, learned from the beginning that exceptional privilege often goes hand in hand with sacrifice. Her first sacrifice was her reputation. I mean, that went forever away. There was always a cloud that she was an immoral woman. Having brought Jesus to the temple, you recall Simeon and Anna immediately recognized this was the Messiah they had been praying for. And Mary was told by Simeon, a sword shall pierce your soul. Can you imagine how Mary felt when she heard of the horror of all the baby boys to and under being slaughtered and looking for her son? Like I said, probably ladies, she knew. The sword pierced through her soul with all of its sharpness when she stood. The cough's not enough. <laughs> I cry too. 
yeah. at the cross, looking at her son hanging there as a com common criminal. She watched him. She was with him till his final moments. She saw all of his agony and his concern for her, even in his dying, uh, asking of John to care for her. She proved with her life that she meant, behold, I'm your bond slave, do whatever you want. So, moving on. <clears throat> with all of this news from the angel to Mary, Mary gives, is given a sign by Gabriel. He says, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was barren is now in her sixth month. So this was a sign given to Mary. So she immediately, um, she knew nothing about this pregnancy. She had obviously been, Elizabeth kept in seclusion. And so Mary headed straight for Elizabeth's house. And upon greeting her cousin, uh, the baby inside Elizabeth leaped with delight. John the Baptist giving a witness even before he was ever born. <clears throat> I love what Elizabeth says to Mary after the baby leaped in her womb. And I, I thought about this, she really felt this in, in a heartfelt way, because what a contrast to her husband, she says. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. You know what? Her husband, remember he doubted, God struck him with uh, not being able to speak until John was born. And I thought maybe there was much deeper meaning for Elizabeth in saying that to Mary. Mary was a young woman of great faith. She is overwhelmed with God, and so she breaks into the song of praise to the Lord. The Messiah is finally going to arrive, and she is the one who's going to give birth to him. She shows us by example how each of us should respond to the amazing good news of the birth of Christ. The average Marian age at that time in that culture was 12 to 15. So here is a very young teenage woman with a mind saturated with biblical truth. No doubt she had memorized the songs of Hannah and Deborah. She certainly knew the songs of the Feast of David. And as the Holy Spirit now inspires Mary to compose her song, she has this heart filled with scripture in her mind. And despite the cold, cruel world of Roman domination in Israel, Mary understands that the proud and oppressive rulers will be humbled by God Mary, therefore, is not troubled by what others think of her. As I said, she, she lost her reputation forever. Certainly people would always misunderstand and look down on her as an immoral woman. <coughs> the gossip in town. Oh, did you hear about it? Anyways, that shadow followed her all of her life. You know, it's even seen when the religious leaders attacked Jesus by casting dispersion on Jesus, saying, well, at least we're not illegitimate like you. But none of that mattered at this moment of unspeakable joy. Mary pours out her heart in her Magnificat, beginning with her exalting the Lord. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. The heart of Mary is really seen in her words. She wants to enlarge the Lord. She's rejoicing in God, her Savior. With every part of her being, she is magnifying the Lord. Mary also recognizes that God is her savior. She's like everybody else, a sinner, trusting God to be her savior from sin. I realize that many view her as sinless and even a co-redeemer, but scripture never teaches such a thing. 
Here we see her praise was for God, not for herself, because God was her Savior. Only people who understand that they are separated from God because of their sin are able to see that they need a Savior from their sin. Next, Mary magnifies the Lord. The idea is that she enlarges God. Since learning she is going to give birth to God in human flesh, she now has begun to think really greater thoughts about God than she ever had before. He certainly hasn't changed, but now Mary sees him like she's never before. Having this much grander of a view of God, she can't help but burst into praise for him. She gives us reasons to praise him as well because his son has come into the world. God's favor on Mary is seen in verses 48 through 50, for he has regard for the humble estate of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. So Mary starts by acknowledging God's grace and mercy in her life. She is a nobody. She really gets that. She understands she's not deserving of any kind of amazing honor. Her being of a humble state and a bond slave, she keeps referring to herself like that, it's a female slave. It just reflects her humility. She can hardly believe that God chose her out of all the women to be the one to give birth to the Messiah. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. It's not the noble and the mighty that he's chosen. He chose a common, humble, lowly, young teenage girl so that all the glory for his work would go to him. Such is the case, really, though, in the life of every believer. There was nothing significant about a common young Jew Jew Jewish woman living in Galilee her husband was just a carpenter, but God showed his favor to her, and she certainly recognizes this when she says, all generations will count her blessed. What unique intimacy Mary had with Jesus. To be the one to hold him and nurse him and care for his every human need. His human features would have been taken from Mary's genetics. She would have seen his smile was hers, her eyes, the way she talked, the way she walked. She would have watched him growing and seeing his similarities. One can't help but think of that great song, Mary, Did You Know? That your baby boy would one day walk on water, that he would save your sons and daughters, and when you kiss your little baby, you've kissed the face of God. Amazing. Indeed, Mary knew she was blessed of women, but she never says it's because of anything she has done. <coughs> She says, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The baby she was carrying was all done by God Almighty. God has done this for her, a sinner. It is God alone who deserves all the glory and all the praise. And so in verse 50, Mary speaks of another attribute of God at work in her life. She says, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Mary understands that in choosing her to give birth to his son, God had been merciful not just to her, but to every generation who fear him. Mary was awestruck that God, who is mighty and holy and merciful, would be so kind to choose her to be the mother of the Messiah. Though none of us could ever experience this unique privilege she had, the truth is that like Mary, 
we should be in the same kind of awe of God for choosing us to be his child. We should never get over the wonder of the truth that God in his sovereign plan opened your heart and your mind so you could hear and see and respond to the gospel. This amazing kindness and mercy that Mary was, was, in, in, was in awe over should be true of each one of us as well. Mary saw herself as she really was, a common sinner in awe that God would be kind to her. You know what? Humility is required in the Christian life. Jesus demonstrates what humility looks like in Philippians 2, and everything about his incarnation is so humbling. This is the same attitude then that he expects from each who claim to be his child. So when you think that you always are right and that you know what everyone else should be doing, that is just a reflection of your own pride. The proud think they deserve God's favor. They think God owes it to them. They think everybody should listen to them. But Mary was humble and grateful for his kindness and grace in her life. You know what? Jesus came into the world to save sinners like her and sinners like you and I. And as we learn from Galatians, he completed the work from start to finish. And there is nothing anyone can do or add to what Christ has done to provide the gift of salvation. Mary then magnifies the Lord for his future deliverance of his people Israel. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. Now Mary focuses her praise on what his salvation will mean in the lives of all of his people. Notice everything she says that God has done. She says it in the past tense. He has scattered, brought down, he's exalted. This is similar to many Old, Old Testament prophets who did this as well as they expressed praise for future events as if they had already happened. The word, prom the word and promises of God are so sure and so true that even what is predicted to happen in the future should be seen as if it's already taken place. It reminds me of Ephesians 2. After we've come to faith in Christ, we're already seated in the heavenlies. I mean, it's so sure that that's like, it's already happened. She is praising God for all the Messiah will do in the future when he will establish his kingdom on earth. The Old Testament speaks very clearly about a kingdom that will come where the Messiah will reign following his second coming, Isaiah chapter 9. And in this future kingdom, God will humble the proud, those who have oppressed uh, those who have been oppressed, rather, will be <coughs> exalted. And Mary knew the history of her people. There had been ruthless tyrants ruling over Israel, whether it was the Pharaoh in Egypt, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and now in Mary's day, the Romans. All Jewish people longed for the day the Messiah would come and overthrow proud rulers and rescue them. Their disobedience had brought about these circumstances. They were awaiting the Messiah and deliverance from their physical suffering. However, their greatest need went far beyond their physical suffering to their spiritual need for salvation. And now Mary is in awe that the one who is being formed in her womb was the one who is going to bring about all of this promised salvation. It's only when the kingdom comes that he will reverse the moral order of things so that indeed whoever exalts himself will be the ones humbled. 
and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We're not Israel. We're not in the future kingdom yet. But really, as church-age believers, uh, there are certain aspects of Christ's kingdom that exist today as he rules in our own hearts. We are citizens of his kingdom, and we have, a ju we have just a little taste of what his future kingdom will be like. I remind you of what James and 1 Peter both say. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The humbling of the proud, the exalting of the humble, is a taste of what the Lord will do in the future when he comes as judge and rules and reigns on this earth. Because Jesus came the first time, we ought to magnify him as God, knowing he will come back a second time. The first time was to die in place of sinners on the cross. The second time will be to establish his messianic kingdom on earth. Because we know he will keep his promise, we have reason to magnify the Lord just like Mary did. So far we've seen Mary magnify the Lord for his favor on her, future deliverance of his people, and she finishes her song by reminding us of God's amazing faithfulness to Israel. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our father, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Having just magnified the Lord for the future messianic kingdom, now Mary exalts the Lord because he is faithful to keep his promise to the Jewish people. You recall that God made that covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And Abraham was told by God, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Indeed, we are the blessed ones. One of Abraham's physical descendants would bless all the families of the earth with salvation. God made that promise to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ was born. And Mary now is praising God that he is so faithful to that promise made so long ago and that she was even a part of all that. Indeed, it is because of this very promise that we are celebrating Christmas again this year. God is faithful to keep all his promises and because God keeps his word, even when we have no idea what he is doing, we can trust him to keep his word to his children. You have to know his word so you know what the promises are so you can be comforted by them. If you're worried about a physical or material need that you are in the midst of, you have the promises from Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all your needs. Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things that you need will be added to you. If you need strength to endure a difficult trial you find yourself in, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. If you struggle with temptation that you're facing, 1 Corinthians reminds you there's no temptation that he hasn't made a way of escape to help you endure it. If you feel very alone this Christmas and so many people you love are not with you this Christmas, you have the promise that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he is always with you. And also the promise that nothing and no one can ever separate you from his love, no trial, no tribulation, no creature, no nothing can separate from his love. This faithful God that Mary magnified in this song is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like Mary, we need to worship the Lord, praise him, and thank him for his sovereign grace to save sinners like you and me. He could return at any moment to establish his kingdom on earth. The question for us this Christmas season is, what is going to be your focus and my focus? Is it going to be focused on shopping, 
and wrapping and decorating and cooking. Those are all fine things to do in balance. But the reason for this season is for us to worship our great God. From Mary, we learn that to have a humble and grateful heart of praise. So as we approach this Christmas season, I think there's a lot more opportunities if we would make them, and I exhort you, you and myself to talk to people because people are in the Christmas spirit, whatever that is, reindeer, penguins, minions, I mean, everything, Santa, whatever Disney character is now, it's got a Santa um, on it, whatever. But that's what our world thinks about Christmas. I, I don't know, but we have an opportunity to say why we're so excited to celebrate Christmas, because okay. it's really real to me. You know, we need to make those opportunities ha happen and take advantage of the fact that people at least are a little more willing to talk about Christmas stuff. Secondly, we ought to be encouraged to see the powerful hand of God at work in human history, that he came at, in the fullness of time. And since every detail is under control from that first coming, and certainly for the second coming, and certainly in every minute detail in your life and in mine, and every situation we face, there is nothing happening to us that God has not ordained or allowed to happen. He has a purpose in everything. And the obvious one being growing us to conform us to be in the image of his son. And then remember Mary, how she reminds us to be a humble servant. View yourself in a humble way. You are nothing but a bond slave to the Lord. And be in awe of him. I hope you'll take the time uh, to even sit and be still long enough to worship him this Christmas. Mary was chosen for a very unique role in human history, but all who humble themselves and call on Jesus for salvation have reason to rejoice. So, why would he choose you or why would he choose me? There's nothing special about any of us, just like Mary. Yet in his great mercy, he has chosen to set his affection on those he calls to himself. Like Mary, I hope you will extol, extol the Lord and worship him. As we go our separate ways these next few weeks, I hope that you will have a truly great celebration of this great king that you really will worship. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing faith of this young girl. <coughs> I pray we would learn from her and honor you with our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.